Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. To understand where we're going, it's important to understand how we got here in the first place. And today we're going to consider that with respect to the media system in the United States. To help us with this monumental task, we have Victor Picard, who's an assistant professor of communication at the Annenberg School at the University of Pennsylvania. You are listening to New Books and Technology. I am your host, Jasmine McNeely. So the book is America's Battle for Media Democracy, The Triumph of Corporate Libertarianism, and the Future of Media Reform. But before we get into the book, what we always like to do on New Books and Technology is to let the author tell a little bit about themselves. So, Victor, would you please give us a little bit about your background and how you got to this point? Sure. Um, I am currently an assistant professor at the Annenberg School for Communication, and I do research on media policy, media activism, uh, the history and political economy of media institutions. But I do have a background in uh, actually being a media activist and working in uh, circles that are devoted to media policy reform. So I'd like to think that my research is also, uh, it's not just based on archival uh, historical work, which certainly is, but it's also informed by direct experiences that I've had in the media policy realm, uh, working in, in D.C., for example. Okay. So with your experience as um in media activism and media policy reform. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? So um, DC, politics, various groups, nonprofits, NGOs, international groups, what did, uh, what, what kind of things were you doing there? Yeah, so I did uh, several different stints in D.C., uh, working with different institutions. For example, I spent a summer uh, working in a congressional office. I was a uh, telecom uh, policy fellow working through the uh, COMPASS program. I'll try not to throw out too many acronyms, but COMPASS stands for the Consortium on Media Policy Studies. Uh, It's something I continue to uh, work with where we place uh, graduate students in host institutions for a summer where they get to work in Washington, D.C., and they're immersed in the media policy process, and they really see the politics behind the media policy-making process. So I was one of the early graduates, you might say, of this program. That was back in summer 2005. I also spent a year working at the public policy think tank, the New America Foundation, uh, working with their Open Technology uh, Institute. And then I also spent um, about six months working working for the leading media reform organization called Free Press. Um, so altogether, I've spent about two, almost two years working in D.C. on various uh, policy initiatives, especially those that were devoted to um, figuring out what we should do about the future of journalism. Mm-hmm. So 
with this background and now with this book, you you and the book discusses radio, which I think, and perhaps you may think this too, but radio is often a forgotten uh, communications technology a lot of times. So we talk yes. about, you know, telephone and everything, and then the internet, of course, but radio is somehow pushed to the back. Yes, this is true. And, and it's unfortunate, um, not only because still millions of Americans uh, listen to the radio on a fairly uh, regular basis, um, it's particularly important for specific uh, constituencies and communities, but but it's also crucial that we understand the history of radio to understand what's happening with our media today. Mm-hmm. So what, what are the aspects of radio that we can see as parallels to, you know, the internet, web, mobile, for instance? Yeah, there are so many parallels, and uh, it's always – I try to be a little bit cautious um, in drawing these historical parallels. Oftentimes, if you, if you push on them too hard, you, you start to see ex- exceptions. But generally speaking, if you look at, as I do in my book, at the uh, 1940s history of radio, at that point, radio was still the – the new media of the 1940s. It was roughly, the commercial broadcast system was roughly the same age as the commercial internet is today. And what you saw in throughout the 1940s were a number of crucial policy debates, I refer to them as, as battles, hence the title of my book, uh, where the social contract between commercial broadcasters, various publics, and government was being established through a series of uh, debates and um, really struggles over what a media system should look like, what its purpose should be in a democratic society. Yeah, so what should, <laughs> perhaps yeah. you could answer the question, what should the purpose of a media system be in a democratic society? Well, I certainly wouldn't be the the final word on that, sure. and um, and just again, sort of pointing historically, I think it's important to show that the answer to that question was not inevitable. There wasn't sort of a natural development um, that evolved so that we have the current system that we have today in the United States. Um, as as it always should be, these kinds of normative debates should be um, deliberated among the among various uh, constituencies and particularly the public. It should be a public debate. It should be something that all of society engages with. And to varying degrees, you saw this uh, in the 1940s. But, for example, um, how much should a, uh, let's say, radio, a, lo- a local broadcaster, how much um, should that broadcaster's programming be determined by the local community? How much should it be devoted to uh, public fair, the pu- coverage of, of public affairs or um, local news? Um, how much should it be devoted to uh, local culture, local uh, educational issues? Um, so these are some of the questions that were being decided in the 1940s, really what the public service responsibility should be for um, commercial broadcasters, but also for newspapers, for uh, journalism writ large. 
Yeah, so maybe we should take a step back and, and really discuss what it is it about radio and perhaps the broadcast system that makes it unique enough that we need to have all these voices step in to discuss what the role um, that the medium should have. I think radio, obviously we have these, um, you know, some, some court cases, some, some, you know, political uh, expositions and, and things discussing the difference between the, what at that time was traditional media, uh, paper, pamphlets, and newspapers, and then you have this new medium at the time that made, that was just different and had to be treated differently. Yes, you're absolutely right. So it was different in a number of respects. Um, the first thing I think you could say is that, and although this is a term that we don't use as often today, but this idea of mass communication, um, at that time radio was the preeminent uh, mass medium. It was something that was um, uh, reaching uh, households across the United States, millions of listeners every day. So it was it was pervasive. Um, it, it, it was ubiquitous. But I think even more important that sort of sets uh, radio and broadcast media apart is that it uses something that's often referred to as the public airwaves. Um, and this sounds like something um, almost like a 1960s slogan, the, 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 the airwaves belong to the public. But this is true, that it's a public resource, and yet it's also a scarce resource. So how we determine who should have license to using those frequencies, those airwaves, and what, again, what sort of the social contract is, what do those people who get those licenses owe the public, owe society in return for tremendous benefits? Because usually they're not paying uh, to use those frequencies. They're, they're paying to uh, maintain um, station, their, their radio stations, and, and, and they have plenty of costs. But they're getting essentially monopoly access to a public resource and then typically making lots of money off that off that medium through uh, advertising. So the question becomes then, since they're using the public airwaves, since not everyone can have access to that resource, then what should they be what, what is their re- return? What are they giving back to society? What, how does the public benefit from this? And these are some of the debates that were being hashed out in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. So 1940s, we have these the beginnings of debates on uh, public interests uh, with respect to broadcast and radio specifically. But one aspect of the answer that you just gave kind of leads me to the question of the idea of ownership, and then to um, the concept that you introduce in the book early, and that is the idea of social democracy. And I was wondering if you could talk about social democracy and how it related to that uh, radio and that specific media technology. Yes. So I think it's a key overarching theme, um, both for my book, but just for in, in general to understand these issues. It's a term that's well known outside of the United States. Um, I think in the U.S., perhaps it sounds uh, 
too similar to socialism or uh, I'm not exactly sure why, but it's, it's, it's a scary term or it's, it's, it's obscure and we don't really talk about it. But it's simply this idea that, and, and especially as it pertains to our media system, that a commercial media system cannot provide all of democratic society's communication needs, that you can't depend on the market to provide these vital public services. And so it's the, it's the idea that you need to remove the profit imperative. You need to uh, have government uh, work in a proactive, uh, progressive sense in protecting this vital system. So if you, if you use that as the framework to understand some of these debates that were happening in the 1940s but continue to uh, happen today, it's this idea that we need to create public set-asides, that we need to help manage the media system um, so that it's not just being run by these commercial values. Mm-hmm. And so the book talks about the, those commercial values and um, actually the the tag is the triumph of corporate libertarianism. So it would seem then that the public interest ideal kind of lost out to commercialism. Is that true? Yeah, I, I, I'd like to keep people in suspense, but <laughs> essentially uh, that is the outcome of these debates, and we are uh, dealing with some of the legacies from, from those policy battles today. Uh, but yes, I think you could define corporate libertarianism as kind of the mere opposite of social democracy. It's more it, – it, it's, it's based on these assumptions that – there is no legitimate role for government in intervening in markets of any kind, particularly media markets. Um, and this is where the First Amendment is often used as a shield uh, by these uh, usually corporate entities um, to, to delegitimate any kind of uh, government intervention, any sort of public policy intervention that, for example, might say that uh, we need more competition in media markets. So we don't want there to just be monopolies. Or uh, another example would be public interest obligations that broadcasters must deliver on uh, to the public in order to hold on to their precious broadcast licenses. Yeah, but doesn't the first the use of the First Amendment for something like radio or broadcast in general, which is fundamentally different from newspapers, again, newspapers, books, pamphlets, uh, where, where anyone presumably could create a newspaper or a news pamphlet or book. Um, doesn't the idea that uh, the First Amendment, and, and of course this is an old, I don't know if it's well settled uh, um, conflict, but the idea that something so scarce could um, be protected by the First Amendment or the use of it could be protected by the First Amendment, doesn't that conflict with um, overall our ideas related to uh, media and what we're supposed to be able to use it for? Yeah, you're putting your finger on a, a core tension, and um, I, I think this tension um, has not been resolved, although at different points in history, uh, the the way that the debates unfold around this uh, question about the First Amendment, um, it, 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 it's often uh, 
different, different in different time periods. But the one thing I would say about the 1940s is that what you saw happen, particularly around broadcast media, but also, again, around newspapers, was this debate about whether the First Amendment was meant to protect individuals, and particularly what's known as their negative rights, that is to protect them from usually the government, um, or is it meant to protect communities and uh, based on freedoms of freedom of access. So what should they have freedom for? Um, what should they have access to? Uh, now, I think it's pretty clear today the way that plays out is that there's more of an emphasis on these kinds of individual rights, and it's more uh, usually defined in terms of negative liberties. So again, that we're prote protecting individuals from government. Um, this is very much in line with the kind of libertarian uh, approach to um, government power and freedom in, in general. But then also today what we see increasingly is that corporations are considered individuals. And you see beginnings of this in the, in the 1940s, and I think that logic has, has even strengthened um, in, our, in our contemporary context. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the IS policies that government came up with to assist with the ideas of access and the public interest was the Fairness Doctrine, which for the most part has been <laughs> done away with. Yes. Uh, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the Fairness Doctrine and the goals for it. Yeah. So the Fairness Doctrine is arguably – Oh, the, one of, if not the most notorious media policy in the United States. It's much maligned, much misunderstood, and it serves, in, in my historical narrative, it's kind of the concluding bookend um, to a series of very fierce policy battles in the 1940s. And even though today it's held up by especially progressive uh, activists, it's held up as kind of a high watermark for enlightened media policymaking. In the 1940s, it was seen as a consolation prize. It was only, the Fairness Doctrine only came about, and, and I'll define it in a, in a moment, but it only came about after uh, they had given up, that media reformers had given up the fight uh, to break up um, broadcasting uh, uh, trusts, and monopolies, and duopolies. So, um, so essentially what the Fairness Doctrine does Many oftentimes people conflate it with the equal time rule, which it is not. Right. The Fairness Doctrine basically determined that broadcasters needed to cover important, controversial issues that are significant for local communities in a balanced manner. So it was never assumed that there would just be two sides to a debate, but rather it put this affirmative duty on broadcasters to go into their communities and find out what their communities wanted covered, uh, what what their, the local communities wanted discussed in, in, in the news on, on their local radio programming. So um, that gives you a sense of, of what it was, and it's had a very long strange history, but as you suggested, it's, uh, it's no longer on the books, and it's now um, largely demonized. <laughs> right, but at the same time, every once in a while, someone brings up the idea that we should bring the Fairness Doctrine back. That's right. And I'm wondering where the Fairness Doctrine would actually fit in a media ecosystem that we have now, or could it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, 
so I, so my, my sort of stock answer to whether we should bring the fairness doctrine back is that ideally instead of, and again, this is what media reformers uh, basically dealt with in the 1940s, this idea that you only turn to these sort of programming, these content level uh, reforms and policies after you've lost the bigger battles on, on the structural makeup of the media system itself. So I would see the fairness doctrine as kind of a secondary problem, uh, or at least what it's trying to address as a secondary problem to a to dealing with a concentrated media system. So ideally, we would have more um, competition. We would make sure that we don't have media monopolies uh, before we start worrying about um, the fairness doctrine. And but going back to your original question, I think that even though it's true we now have all these different kinds of, of media channels available to us today, there are still, you can still point to concentrations of news and information in our, in our media ecosystem. So I don't think we no longer have those problems. I mean, we can just point to cable news as, as, a, as an example of where the, the breadth of, of political opinion is not very rich. Um, it's, it's not varied in any meaningful way. Uh, so I don't think these problems uh, no longer exist, but I, I do think there's, there's room for debate about whether the fairness doctrine is the best way to address those problems. Mm-hmm. Now, we're talking about media systems, and I was wondering if you could really either define or explain a little more what America's media system actually is. Yeah, that's a great question, uh, and, and fortunately um, – we're running out of time, so I won't have to. I won't try to dwell on it too long. But um, but I will say uh, that I think of the media system. And I take a holistic approach. You could say a media media ecosystem. But this would include everything from broadband internet to uh, old news media like radio, like newspapers. Um, it's true that everything is becoming increasingly digital, uh, but I think we also need to remember that the, not everyone's getting their news uh, from the internet. Mm-hmm. And also we need to include things like, uh, like our, our, our cell phones and, and what used to be referred to as telecommunications. So basically everything that serves as a medium for news and information would be part of this media system that I refer to throughout my book. Mm-hmm. So, so then, what would a public-oriented media system look like here in the states? Another great question. <laughs> I would, uh, I would, I think one of the best ways to understand what we mean by a public media system is that it's it's a system that is not for profit, mm-hmm. um, that it's not commercialized. Um, and there are many different ways that we could try to support this kind of media system, but its 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 end objective essentially is to remove the profit motive from media production. Um, and so this could include everything from uh, an enhanced version of PBS and NPR. It could include uh, municipally owned and operated broadband internet networks. Um, there are uh, nonprofit uh, like. Uh, local uh, FM radio is another great example of this. Um, low profit, non profit newspapers. So it really could be a, a, a vast 
multimedia network. Um, if we if we just could agree first politically that it's something that we need to have as a democratic society, and then if we try to focus on logistically finding ways to support this financially. Mm-hmm. Now, what do, what do you see as the future then for? Uh, media policy and for the system of media in the states? Well, I obviously would say that it remains to be seen. Um, We have a lot of ongoing uh, policy fights happening right at this very moment around things like uh, mega media mergers and uh, net neutrality. Uh, And I also think there's a legitimacy uh, and a relevance question for the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, right now. Um, So it's it's very much open-ended. I wouldn't try to predict any outcomes uh, at at this moment. But what I I do think is going to happen, particularly with our our, uh, print news media um, and professional journalism in general, is that things are going to get – are going to get worse uh, before we as a society really try to tackle this at a systemic level. Um, but it will require a, a political shift, um, if, if not towards uh, social democracy, at least an acknowledgement of market failure, this idea that mar- we can't depend on markets to uh, deliver on all the uh, communications that, 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 that we as a democratic society require, that we are going to have to create alternative structures and new models. And yet, radio remains. Um, people still tune into the radio, whether that's uh, terrestrial or satellite. And I wonder if you would had any thoughts on why radio seems to have endured for such a long time. Well, it's funny that you ask that. I always do uh, unofficial surveys of my uh, students, um, and I, I, I check in with them. Uh, to get uh, an idea of who's still listening to radio. And it, it, it seems to me increasingly people are listening um, to radio in their cars. <laughs> um, and uh, But again, as, as I noted earlier, there are uh, specific constituencies, socioeconomic groups that are disproportionately dependent on radio. And so I don't see it going away anytime soon. Uh, and, I, and, and it remains a very important medium, but I think as important are these bigger questions um, that we can point to radio as an example of where a, a, a social contract is in flux, um, that we're still trying to define what that relationship should be between media and government and various publics. And um, so uh, I think all these questions are very much uh relevant and open-ended. <laughs> well, that's good, right? <laughs> so I asked about your opinions about the future of radio and media reform and the U.S. media system, but another thing we like to know here is what's in the future for you, the author? What's oh, next? Wow, that's, that's the toughest question you've asked thus far. Um, I would say, so 
what I see leading out of this book after I've historicized our, our current uh, media system and many of the related policy debates, I, I see two book projects coming out of this. One is focused on, again, this question about the future of journalism, uh, particularly what can we do in terms of public policy to try to help sustain and, and protect public service journalism. Um, and then the other one is going more towards the politics of our digital infrastructures. And this is where uh, questions around net neutrality, but also just ownership and control of, of the internet, of, of all the infrastructures that make up our digital media system. Um, this is, this is uh, going to be an increasingly uh, fraught terrain in, in the coming years. And um, so I hope to be able to intervene in that debate as well. All right. So, in, but in the meantime, if uh, audience member wants to read more from you, do you have your own website or? Uh, I do have a website at victorpicard.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter uh, at VW Picard. It's Picard with a K. Um, so uh, I, uh, I often opine on, on these issues uh, via tweets. And, um, and yeah, I'm very easy to find online. So I, I encourage uh, readers to, to get in touch with me if they're interested in these subjects. Excellent. So the book is America's Battle for Media Democracy, The Triumph of Corporate Libertarianism and the Future of Media Reform. It's on Cambridge University Press, correct? Yes. And it's out now, right? That's right. Officially, it will be out on Halloween, but it, it, you can order it now. Well, that's a great trick-or-treat. Yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Well, this has been New Books in Technology. We were glad to have Victor Picard on. Thank you very much, Victor. Thank you, Jasmine.